In many markets, home prices far exceed the highs of the housing bubble that burst in 2007. Nationwide, they've shot up nearly 20% since last year alone, and the average price of a home has never been higher than it is today. So what's driving the fast rise in home values? Are we now in another housing bubble? And more important, are homeowners at risk of another devastating bust in prices? Well, we posed these questions to a housing market scholar, and his answers weren't what we expected. Housing is cyclical. It, before the 1990s, it was cyclical in quantity, and now it can't be anymore because of local regulatory uh, uh, obstructions and now because of federal mortgage obstructions. So now because it can't be uh, um, cyclical in quantity, now it's cyclical in price. Hello, and welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. And today we are very lucky to have uh, a guest who is going to help us address the question, is there a national housing bubble in America? Uh, he is a visiting fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, and he's author of the book, Shut Out, How a Housing Shortage Caused the Great Recession and Crippled Our Economy. We've invited him on the program today to discuss today's red hot prices in many housing markets across America. Uh, what's driving these record prices? Are we experiencing another dangerous housing bubble similar to the one that burst at the start of the great financial crisis? I'd like to welcome Kevin Erdman to the program. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. All right, Kevin. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you here. I've had a lot of people asking for a housing expert, so I'm very happy you were able to come on and join us today. Um, all right, let me start with the general question that I ask every guest with a little spin, given your particular area of focus. What is your current assessment of today's economy and of the housing market? You know, I think it's, it's sort of funny because I think we're in a difficult position from a wealth management point of view, um, partly because I think the Fed has managed, you know, we sort of had this supply shock from the pandemic and the Fed has, to my mind, managed things well so that, you know, it, 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 accepting everything else, it would be nice from a wealth management point of view to be sitting at a 40% loss in the stock indexes and have easy decisions to make. The, the fact that everything's sort of, had, you know, has recovered and, 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 the Fed didn't add a demand shock to a supply shock, sort of puts us in a position where, um, you know, we didn't, those losses were pretty short lived. Uh, and now there's the difficult decision of, of, you know, what to do with capital allocation in a market where prices aren't uh, all at a discount. <laughs> and, you know, you could say the same thing, I suppose, in a way about housing. Um, I mean, housing's been a little bit funny, and I'm not sure any of us knows exactly what's been driving it. But um, but again, you know, no, nobody's out there getting deals right now in the housing market. So it makes things uh, difficult from an asset allocation point of view. But but really, that's all good news in a way. You know, we'd rather be in a functional economy where capital is flowing than an economy that's healing from its wounds. All right. So, yeah, so we, we, we avoided... Um a painful deflationary crunch in asset prices, both in the markets and in housing, uh, but putting words in your mouth and feel free to correct them, uh, things are, are somewhat richly valued now, which makes future capital allocation harder. Um, so let's, let's 
kind of pull at that richly valued thread. So um, the uh, S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Housing Index uh, is you know, probably the most conventional way at people, by which people judge uh, current levels of valuation in the housing market. And at over 200 now, it is the highest it's ever been. Um, and let me, I've got some stats here. Let's see. Um, that index, index itself posted a 3.2 annual gain uh, in March, the fastest pace that home prices have risen in more than 15 years. Uh, and let's see here. Uh, recently, the National Association of Realtors reported that the median existing home price in April was uh, up 19.1% from the year before. So that's pretty, pretty substantial appreciations there. Um, so, you know, as we look across a lot of markets in the country, we see that many of them are now above, maybe even well above uh, the record highs that they had reached during the, you know, 2007 run up um, of that previous housing bubble. Um, so, of course, that question housing bubble is on a lot of people's uh, lips now. And even, you know, Nobel Prize winner Robert Schiller himself, the creator of that index I mentioned earlier, uh, he describes the current housing market as, quote, having aspects of a bubble to it. He then goes on to say, I think it is some kind of irrational exuberance. People are having fun and they will as long as prices keep going up. Uh, he does predict that they are going to eventually drop from here uh, and uh, they'll drop far enough, quote, to cause some pain. So let's just dive right into the whole reason that we're having today's conversation is, are we in a housing bubble uh, should we have concerns that we might experience a similar trajectory as we did once the, the previous bubble burst back in 2007, or is this truly a different situation this time? It's different uh, in some ways, uh, but it's the same in some ways that, that probably a lot of your listeners will um, uh, find counterintuitive, um, because as, as you know from, from uh, seeing my my work, um, I would push back against the idea that we had a bubble in 2005 um, that was fueled by irrational exuberance that uh, inevitably had to crash. I think the crash in 2008 uh, was the result of a lot of hard work at the federal level that was that was taken uh, with the with the the, the goal of making that crash happen. I think we had to work really hard to make housing prices crash. Um, and I don't see federal officials uh, with, the, with the same sort of attitude we had back then. Uh, you know, I, I think in 2008, there's sort of a sense of we did this to ourselves. We, we you know, went, went for too much. We were too speculative. Um, we were irrational and we sort of had it coming. And that led to a lot of policy decisions that either accepted a crisis or, or asked for one. In fact, explicitly going back and looking at the, the public conversation at the time, people literally did explicitly demand financial panics. Um, and so I think we're at a different place psychologically today. Um, and so, so I would say the lesson that people have learned from the, from the last cycle was that we were too complacent and we believed this myth that home prices never go down and it made everyone complacent and it led to the speculative bubble. Uh, I would say the lesson to learn is actually, you have to work really hard to get uh, prices, home prices to collapse like that, especially across the board in every city across the country. Um, and so I don't think that that's inevitable today, but I think we could certainly make it happen again if, 
if that sentiment changes again. Um, I think the, in terms of the details, I think uh, what I've done in my work is sort of second guess this idea that debt and speculation, um, that these were the driving forces in the, in the housing boom before the great financial uh, or the great recession. And what I found is actually rents, rising rents were the most important factor even back then. Rents have been universally dismissed as a factor. And if you look at the national, you can sort of squint hard enough at the national level to make it look like rents weren't driving prices. But if you go down to the local level, um, rents really do explain everything. In fact, through that bubble, you know, from the mid 90s through that bubble up till today, rents have continually at the regional level been a more and more important factor driving prices, which is sort of um, obvious when you start thinking about, it. you know, like today, people in San Francisco, for instance, today are mad about, high, or at least pre-pandemic, pre were mad about tech workers moving into town, right, and driving up home prices. Well, they weren't mad that those workers couldn't afford houses there. They were mad that they could afford houses and they were driving rents up, right? Um, that's, the, that's actually the overwhelming force driving the American housing market. And so what, was, what happened in that boom was cities like New York City and Boston and LA and, and San Francisco, um, uh, they really have a very low rate of, they don't permit enough housing. They don't permit enough housing, even just for regular population growth, even just like to have places for their children to live. So there's this constant outflow of households out of those cities. So there was a moderate increase in housing demand during that period, which you could think of in a lot of ways. One way to think about it is, is sort of the number of people per, per unit was declining slightly, which is, has been very common in the past. In the 70s and 80s, that happened, and we just built more houses. But these cities don't do that now. So, so that drove up rents in those cities. It drove up prices along with those rents in those cities. And it drove this migration event of all these families moving out of those places for lack of housing. And those families moving out of those places moved into places like Phoenix and Las Vegas and Florida and inland California. So rather than an irrational um, buyer's market, really what we had was a localized housing supply that metastasized into the rest of the country and, and sent all these people flooding into other cities and then overwhelming their local markets for lack of supply because they suddenly had, it was sort of like a refugee crisis. Suddenly there's thousands of families coming into Phoenix that need a roof over their head. They're, they, they're looking for shelter. It's a fundamental demand drive. Um, now, what's interesting is that's basically what's happening today. There's migration out of those coastal cities and that's driving Phoenix and, and Austin and, and Miami. You know, there's all these markets where prices are going up. So we have the same migration story. The populations of these coastal centers are declining uh, migration is spiked out of them, but this time it's not uh, that migration wasn't spiked by a housing boom or a boom, you know, in demand for home ownership. This time the migration was actually spiked because people wanted to leave those cities because the pandemic changed the flavor of those cities for whatever reason, whether they can work from a distance or the, the amenities of those cities weren't as enjoyable because the pandemic closed everything down. So we have the same migration event, but this time instead of driving being the result of rents in those cities being driven up, it's actually people moving out as the motivation and rents in those cities are going down. But for the rest of the country, it's sort of the same thing happening. There's this new flow of people moving in and, and supply isn't able to sort of keep up with that flow of, um, 
of migration. Now, one a difference I've noticed in in the, which surprised me a little bit in the current market compared to that market is there was a very specific uh, um, flow in 2003, four and five. And, and so I, I call those coastal cities closed access cities is my sort of term for them, the cities that don't build enough housing and create this sort of uh, this ongoing housing uh, uh, cost inflation. And then the other cities I call the contagion cities, the ones that sort of caught the disease when all this migration happened. Um, and you can see in the, you know, those cities were very distinctly different from the rest of the country. Phoenix had a much different uh, housing market in 2004 and five than Dallas did, you know, or, or Nashville, you know, or Atlanta. Those cities didn't quite get as much of the migration as, as these uh, cities, you know, that were, that were taking on the California and the, and the Northeast um, migration. And so you get, a, you know, there's really is sort of two Americas at that time. There's an America that really didn't take any part in a housing boom. And then there's an America where uh, prices rose much more than everyone else. Today, it seems to be much more across the board, like um, uh, rent to price. Um, I, I just did a couple of blog posts where you know, I was looking at rent to price ratios across the country. And they seem to have, have sort of um, declined you know, relatively similarly across the country. I don't, I mean, there's certainly cities that um, where prices have gone up a lot. I'm in Phoenix and we've seen that here, you know, Austin is the case, but I think more so than back then, uh, rents have been going up almost as quickly. Um, and I think part of that is because supply is even more obstructed today than it was in 2005. So in 2005, they weren't building enough houses in LA and San Francisco today, we're having trouble building enough houses, even in places like Phoenix, and so rent inflation is coming, you know, coming along with it. And so there really is even more of a widespread fundamental justification for rising prices. And the only answer for it is increased residential investment and more building over time. Okay, that was a lot, and I got a lot of questions coming off of that. So, Kevin, it, it sounds like kind of at the heart of your view of the housing market, it it really is all about inventory. Um, that there have, has been back at the previous, I'll call it a bubble still, even though you might have a different term for it, uh, and, and the current situation, um, it seems to be the main factor that's driving things is just not enough units uh, for demand um, or, or sufficiently small enough uh, unit supply that, that that's what's driving prices higher. Um, I see you nodding. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I have a number of questions about stimulus. Um, uh, sorry about inventory, but but before I get to it, um, let, let me just ask you, you made a comment earlier, I, I just would love for you to clarify, you said back in 2007, uh, you had to, we had to work hard to engineer a housing crisis, and that we were sort of courting the crisis uh, from a policy side. Uh, what specifically do you mean by that? What, what, what particular policies did you see as sort of creating or sort of asking for the, the, the bubble pop? Mm. Uh, I, actually, I actually have a second book that will be coming out probably in January called uh, Building from the Ground Up, uh, where, where I walk through the policy decisions. Um, so shut out, it sort of sets the table, uh, you know, about how housing is so central to the economy. And then the, this book will sort of walk through the policy decisions that time. And I would argue that um, the, that entire CDO, you know, so that the, we had these private mortgage markets, you know, where instead of going to Fannie and Freddie or the FHA or uh, um, 
private banks that held um, mortgages on their books, we had this private securitization market where you know they were originating mortgages and selling them off to these securities, right? But you know where they were all divvied up into these different bonds that people were buying, and then eventually. And that happened to rent, you know, that sort of blew up in sort of 2003 and four and five. And then eventually those securities started being re-engineered into another tier of investments that were called CDOs. And so they would take all these mortgage securities and they would reshuffle them into new securities and people were buying those securities. And the reason people wanted those securities is because people wanted AAA, they wanted something safe to invest in and they had run out of safe things to invest in. Then eventually those CDOs weren't feeding that uh, need for safety enough. So now they got re-engineered to sort of fake CDOs that were just, you know, pretend uh, securities where we'll pretend we're investing in some mortgages and you pretend that you're uh, sort of, you know, paying the, the monthly premiums. And then if this, you know, if the mortgages default, then we owe you money, right? These complicated, just fake things. And, and those those were really dominating the market by uh, mid-2006. Well, home prices peaked in early 2006. Housing, uh, home sales peaked by, you know, by late 2005, home sales are starting to decline. Home ownership peaked in 2004. So this whole, all of those products that people associate with a bubble aren't associated with any increase in activity. They're not, aren't in, associated with any, you know, rise in home ownership. Um, those products were actually a warning signal that we were already in a, a, an economy that was that was in fear, that was seeking safety, that wasn't producing, um, and that went on for a couple of years before we got to the point where home prices were collapsing by a percent and a half every month, and, the, and Lehman Brothers failed and all that stuff. Um, I, the stuff, all that stuff that was happening in 2008 that's associated with the crisis to me is a, is a late after effect of us um, sort of watching a market go to crisis and telling ourselves, well, you know, what can we do? We've already, we've already set the table for this because of our excess. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like a snowball, you know, the, the Federal Reserve could have made some very just subtle decisions in late 2006, early 2007, just say stopping the interest rate increases at four and a half percent instead of five and a quarter or something. Uh, you know, GDP growth was even starting to decline by 2006 and seven. Um, and so, you know, it, if, they had, if they had managed the economy for stability by, by 2007, we, we would be sitting here today not realizing what we hadn't gone through, right? And it would have looked like the simplest thing. And as month by month, as we, as crisis kept sort of rearing its ugly head, rather than, rather than us collectively seeing that and Federal Reserve officials and, and Treasury officials looking at that and saying, oh, things are getting out of hand, we should stabilize. Instead, we collectively looked at, at these changing um, conditions and said, boy, those mistakes we made in 2005 were even worse than we thought they were. We, we built even more, to, you know, we built too many houses and we must have even built too many more than we thought we'd built. And so by, you know, by the time home prices started declining uh, in uh, late 2007 
And by the way, defaults and, and foreclosures really happen after that. They're, they're an after effect too. Um, by the time home prices were falling, housing starts were down you know, 35% or more and in, in continuing to collapse. Uh, in any previous cycle, the Fed would have considered that a red flag for stability. Housing starts are a, a, a great leading indicator. Uh, in fact, there's a, a really interesting speech uh, the economist Ed Lehmer gave the Fed in, uh, they had a, a, the big annual meeting at the end of August 2007, where he walks through this historical um, data that says, you know, by the time housing starts are down this much, uh, that's the time to start um, start uh, stimulating. And you, if you don't stimulate, you're bound to have a deep recession if housing starts to decline from here. And then in his own speech, he says, but this time you can't do that because we built so many extra houses, we don't have that option to us. So even I, it, it, when I found his presentation, I, 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 my, my jaw hit the floor because the first half of his presentation was exactly what the Fed needed to hear. It, it, was, it was such a great, uh, 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 wise historical review of the evidence. And then even having given that evidence, he was with the consensus that we just had too many houses. You know, as I try to which, show and which, shut which out, which you think was wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, we never had too many houses. The reason anything was happening is because we didn't have enough houses. In fact, I, ha I have a paper that I can provide a link to where I have quantitatively gone through at the metro area level uh, and shown that there just there just was never anywhere that that had thousands of homes that they didn't know what to do with. The places that ended up with a lot of vacancies in two thousand eight were the places like Phoenix where there was this mass migration event that had, had come in. They were just trying to build enough houses to meet that. And then suddenly that migration event went, dissipated with the crisis and they were left with empty houses because decades old migration pattern, not only did this migration boost from the boom go away, but decades old migration patterns that had been happening since World War II dissipated. And of course they're gonna, you know, any economy is gonna be left with empty houses uh, yeah. in that. Okay, so it looks like you're saying um, uh, they, you know, mismanaged. Uh, they mismanaged the response to uh, the slowing economy, uh, and basically, you know, put a knife in the back of of, of housing prices. Um, you know, I think in your words, it could have been handled more differently. But one of the outcomes of that, uh, as you said, it was an inventory-driven um, housing situation. And by more or less putting a knife in the back of the housing market, uh, having read some of your work, uh, you know, they crushed the home builders. And so for the years following, you know, the, during the Great Recession uh, and perhaps even a few years after that, uh, you know, home building activity really slowed down relative to historic pace. Um, I'm assuming that just made the housing inventory situation even worse. Um, so you're nodding. You're, okay, great. So <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this: like when, when you look at, um, so you know, it, it it makes sense that housing prices should be driven by rents, right? That 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 is the theoretical way that you should be valuing a house, just like you value a stock, right? Which is a multiple of the earnings uh, that that company generates. Uh, housing should be worth some multiple of the rents that that it could command if rented out. Um, so. Uh, when you look at uh, sort of what you think ideal housing inventory would be for the country, given our current population and economy, what what is the deficit right now in your mind? 
I've seen estimates between a million or six million, but but what, what, what do you think it would take to kind of get to equilibrium or sustainable equilibrium? I, I, I mean, I, I think something like six million is, we, we could have six million more homes now and we, and we wouldn't have a problem knowing what to do with them, certainly, especially if those houses were in LA and New York and San Francisco and Boston. Um, and in a way, I would, I would sort of tweak the, I, I think in a way, partly what's happened is uh, because we all sort of experienced this event in, in, in the last boom, there's this idea that like we, that at some point we started building houses that weren't needed. Um, and that we, you know, there were just, you know, there were empty neighborhoods out in the desert, uh, you know, that sat empty for years uh, because we suddenly, you know, once once the feds, the, the, the second step of that, which we can get into if you want to later is after the Fed started stabilizing, then we really put the clamps down on mortgage lending and made it hard to, to create supply by selling it to new sort of entry level buyers. And that's really what's been dri driving the, uh, the housing depression since then. But, um, but, you know, we had this idea that, oh, you know, if you build too many houses, um, you know, you're just stuck with these things that you don't know what to do with. And then, and then it creates all this, uh, um, all these problems. But, you know, that comes from misunderstanding the supply and demand parts of this. And the thing is, uh, one, one, of the, one of the ways I put it is housing is cyclical. It, before the 1990s, it was cyclical in quantity, and now it can't be anymore because of local regulatory uh, uh, obstructions and now because of federal mortgage obstructions. So now because it can't be uh, um, cyclical in quantity, now it's cyclical in price. And the thing is, in the 70s and 80s, if you look at how, so one of the things I do is I look at, I take housing starts as a portion, as a percentage of the housing stock. You know, how much are we growing the housing stock each year? And in the 70s, uh, it, you know, it would in a single year, like I don't know what we are uh, it, uh, um, on new housing sales now, a little over, you know, a million or something. They would add that many, like just cyclically over a year and a half or two years. And then there would be a recession and it would drop that much. Like the cyclical movement in housing back then uh, was was amazing. And the thing is, it didn't lead to vacancies because actually on the demand side, that, that's not how the housing market works. It's not like we have a set number of households and if we, if we don't have enough, then we have a shortage. And if we have too many, we don't know what to do with them. There's actually a lot of, of um, informal and formal sort of, you know, give and take in housing demand that the 25 year old is still living in the basement. The, you know, the family that's sort of doing okay, that's, you know, we, we, why don't we buy that vacation home up in the mountains? You know, there's, there's tons of decisions on the margin uh, that amount to many percent, uh, you know, uh, percentiles of the housing stock that the demand can go up and down to, you know, given whatever supply is available. Uh, I mean, we can see that in, in these problem cities like San Francisco, you know, you see, you know, uh, people making six figure incomes that are, you know, 10 of them piled into a, you know, a single house, you know, to save on rent. You know, you can see, you know, partly what was happening in 2005 is they'd been piling into houses like sardines and, and these new mortgages were giving some of them the, the ability to go get their own little condo, right? Um, and so, so that, you know, that drove, because San Francisco wouldn't build them a condo, then somebody had to move to to Las Vegas to make room for that. 
Um, so because we've become so tied up in knots in terms of supply, we've sort of, uh, we've sort of accepted this idea that household size is something like that all these informal changes that happen aren't, don't exist anymore. That like household size is 2.57 people per household. And that's the way it was 10 years ago. And that's the way it'll be 10 years from now. But that's just never been the case. Household size in other countries that build enough houses uh, has been has continued to decline like it was here in the 70s and 80s. The reason household size is stable is because we don't build enough houses. And then because household size is stable, we've, we've convinced ourselves that there's some sort of level of housing supply that we have to hit or everything gets out of whack. So I don't think there's actually a danger of overbuilding. Uh, we, there's lots of ways we can find to use whatever houses we use, but certainly uh, several millions of houses could would have to be built before rental expenses would revert back to long-term norms. One of the things I think people don't account for is we're spending more on rent as a, as a nation than we ever have before. The rental value of our houses is higher than it's ever been as a portion of our income. And it's because it's not because we're building too many, it's because we're not building enough. Okay, great. And I, I really actually want to dig into that because um, eventually, my question I have for you is, is do you eventually hit an affordability threshold, right? Where, um, you know, people just don't have at the margin uh, money to support the current prices. Um, let's see, before we get there though, a uh, couple, I mean, I could go on all day about, <laughs> about this. I'm trying to condense it to just a short period of time here. Um, so uh, first off, I remember seeing charts, um, at least in my mind, back in like 2006, showing historical um, home price to rent ratios. And you could see, you know, a, a long-term mean and then just a huge spike as, as prices were really taking off, which I think a lot of people look at a metric like that saying, all right, well, that's a bubble, right? You've, you've, you've got a historic uh, average there and you're really deviating from it. Um, what is happening over the past couple of years with the, the price to rent ratio? Um, is it increasing similarly or is it, is it more closer to historic means? It's increasing it. And, you know, there it's, it's, Difficult to know exactly how all these pieces fit together. I'm sure that part of that is the low, uh, I would consider a driver of home prices to be not necessarily mortgage rates per se, but low, but long-term real interest rates. So I tend to, I like to use the 30 year tips yield as a sort of uh, indicator of, of, um, of you know, how sensitive housing prices should be to interest rates because they're a real asset, their value will increase with inflation, just like a tips bond does. And so there, there has to be, I'm, I'm sure that there's some sensitivity uh, to, to those, to, to long-term yields, uh, you know, given, given the options that, that are out there to uh, allocate your capital to um, the amount, you know, the rent that's required to justify a home, uh, buying a home at today's prices, surely is lower than it was in the 1990s, for instance, because the, the future value, the present value of those is just greater because yields are lower. Um, but I think the, the funny thing about the price to rent ratio is the thing uh, primarily, overwhelmingly, the thing that drives price to rent ratios higher is rising rents. And the, it's a rare case where the denominator is the driving factor because the positive, uh, feedback mechanisms from rent to price 
are high enough that for every percent increase in rent, you see price increases by more than a percent. So if you take, say, the 50 largest metropolitan areas over time and you look at, and you look at price to rent ratios in each metropolitan area from, say, 1990 to today, um, the affordable cities have price to rent ratios that never really change that much. Where price to rent ratios are high, ironically, is where rents are high. Uh, I, you know, I think one way to sort of think about it is that buying a house in a city like San Francisco is sort of like buying a growth stock instead of a value stock. You're buying that house, you're buying that house because you've been renting and your rents are going up 8% a year and you're buying it to stop that. You're buying it as a rent hedge. Um, and it just, you know, in terms of what the data say across the board, the, the, it, this is a universal um, relationship that price to rent ratios increase because rents increase. It's, it happens with, across metropolitan areas, uh, it happens across time, and it happens within metropolitan areas. The cheapest houses in the metropolitan area are at the lowest price to rent ratio, and the, and the, the neighborhoods with the highest incomes and the highest rents, they have the highest price to, to rent ratios. Right, great. So here, here's where I'm going with this, which is, uh, you know, as you said earlier, um, you know, rental prices are are going up still, right? Um, and I, I live near San Francisco, so I feel like I've I've got a fairly decent bead on probably one of the more extreme cases in the country. Um, but rents are going up, and home prices are going up faster than rents, right? The 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 price to rent ratio is increasing, as you said, right? So. My, you know, I'm going to get to the affordability question now, which is, you know, do you get to a part there where you just hit a critical mass where, where you know, A, people just aren't able to, to, to pay the rents and B, um, they're certainly not able to pay uh, the, to, to buy into the, the housing prices because the housing prices are, are increasing at an even faster rate. Uh, and I know that there's spillage. I mean, my, my state is hemorrhaging people into other markets like Austin and Phoenix and Boise and all that stuff. Um, but we're, we're having the same effect there, right? Where both rents are going up and prices are going there quickly too. So, so do you get to a point in the story where enough people say, I just can't do it. And if you do, what happens? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think everything comes down to supply. So in a, in a place like San Francisco, you probably, there might be more uh, potential for price volatility um, because um, San Francisco is just maxing out its municipal willingness to build more houses. In the yeah, you, you, you can't build more houses there. I mean, unless literally you, 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 you know, destroy what's there and just build super high rises everywhere, which is looking unlikely. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, so on the one hand, that means that the rental the, the, the rental justification for it isn't going anywhere. I mean, we of course we've had these these upheavals due to the COVID factor, and a lot of people have had their rents go way down in places like San Francisco. I, I think we'll see that uh, sort of go back to, to traditional trends once once we're through COVID. Um, but but you know it is interesting that even given those falling rents, it hasn't had much of an effect. Prices have sort of leveled off in San Francisco, but prices haven't collapsed like rents have. Um, in the other cities, um, I, I think um, it, it's still a lack of supply and rising rents that, that's driving the market. So I, I think um, 
I guess I just don't see that necessarily as a danger. I think price, you know, price is like how much people are going to pay for bonds. It's just, it's what the market bears. And they, you know, that I don't foresee it, uh, a price collapse happening in these cities. Uh, I think it might level off for a while. Um, but uh, the only way that would make prices really fall would be a, a long-term concerted supply effort where all these cities, I mean, most of the cities, a lot of cities could easily double their rate of construction from today just to, to sort of continue the trend, building trends that would have been common before the crisis. Um, and that's not going to happen overnight. So the things that would really fundamentally bring prices down, uh, you know, would be su such a, a part of a long-term supply process that, that I don't see it as sort of a cyclical danger. The other thing about that is, you know, what we're seeing today is a lot of, you know, uh, what, what ends up happening is when markets get hot, uh, appraisers like can't keep up with the market, right? So you get this weird situation, which we see a lot of anecdotes about today, where, a you know, a house is listed for 400,000 because that's, that's what the appraisals come in at. They know that it's really going to sell for 450, but they, you know, but the, the, Realtor is not going to set it above appraisal, and the banks aren't going to approve somebody for a mortgage at 450. So you get all, you know, 20 bids above asking, right, from people that have gathered cash from somewhere, so they can, so they can, you know, buy the house, you know, with this with a mortgage that's not, uh, you know, uh, you know, where they're making a larger down payment, so they can get a mortgage for the appraised part. So actually, there's a lot of people in a hot market like today. There's a lot of people. The leveraged buyers are sort of locked out. Like they, there's some markets they literally they go and put bids in and they keep losing because you know all the all the houses are selling it above appraisal. Um, I think you know if you think about that, the first thing that's going to happen as those markets cool off is the all those above asking prices you know sort of settle down. The appraisers catch up, right? And you and you end up now with a market. Uh, where it's appraised at 450 and it's selling at 450. And maybe because the market was hot and you know, maybe it stays at 450 for a couple of years, but now you've got all this pent up demand of all the people that needed a, you know, that could only afford a 5% down payment that have basically been locked out of the market for a year. And now they can actually come in and start buying. So I think that actually sets sort of a, you know, a, a, a support under markets that have been hot. Um, and uh, the irony is when that happens, uh, and I think this is part of the story, this is speculative, but I think this is part of the story of what happened in 2005, six, seven, and eight, is the same things happening you know, at that time in Phoenix where I live, you know, prices had gone, had skyrocketed. Um, you know, they were basically holding lotteries at the new neighborhoods for who, you know, we've got five permits this week. Uh, you know, 10 of you showed up, put your names in a hat and five of you get the honor of buying a house this week and next, come back next week and it'll be $5,000 more and we'll go through this again. Um, as those markets cool off, naturally the more uh, leveraged buyers are the ones that have been locked out of that and they come in and our response to that is to say, oh, it's a Minsky cycle. You know, people get more and more, um, uh, you know, speculative, and they're more and more leveraged, and this is just another step in the bubble. When actually, that's just a natural side effect of the of the bubble sort of, uh, of reaching a new plateau. And I think that's partly what happened in um, 2006 and seven and eight. Is first we see debt continuing, mortgage debt continuing to rise after prices leveled off, 
and we said, oh, this is still just that same bubble that we've had. This is just more debt that's part, part of that same process because we ignored all these fundamental reasons that prices were rising. And then eventually the mortgages kept rising, but eventually that was actually distressed borrowing and people in cities like Phoenix that were actually early going into the recession, yet they still had homes that, that the values had gone way up and they had home equity they could draw on. So eventually that, uh, that uh, borrowing is distressed borrowing, people whose local incomes are falling through the floor and they're you know, grasping at liquidity, and, in, and that's happening in 2007. And we're still going, yeah, that's all just this bubble activity. All these people just, they, they need to be disciplined. They don't know what they're doing. And so we kept interpreting anything that had to do with debt as part of a bubble. And really a lot, there's sort of two phases of debt accumulation. Up through 2005, debt was funding home building. By 2007, it's almost purely a distress activity. Um, and I think that's what happened. You know. If, if we impose our, um, our uh, you know, sort of uh, idea of what's happening on the market from a policy framework and going forward from today, we, we start doing that, we could end up sort of changing sentiment. So we just drive ourselves into an unnecessary housing collapse again. Um, but I don't think there's any reason, you know, I, I think it's perfectly natural to expect all these markets that have been hot to sort of level off for the next couple of years for more leveraged buyers to sort of, you know, fill in the gaps there um, for things to just cool off for housing starts to continue to be strong and rise. There's no reason for housing starts to decline in any of these cities. Um, and we really should be managing for growth and it, it'll be up to us. That's what one of the interesting things is a lot of things could happen from here into the future. Most of those things are going to be products of decisions we haven't made yet. And it really will be up to us communally to have a, a stable market versus a, a collapsing market. And there's, I, I don't think we have to be afraid of stability. All right, great. So um, this is sort of ending exactly where I wanted the conversation to end, which is um, what is your outlook going forward for the national housing market? And maybe I'll, I'll put some um, summarizing words in your mouth uh, from what you just said. Uh, it sounds like you aren't worried about uh, a, a crash in prices. It sounds like maybe you think the hotter markets that we're seeing right now may level out for several years. Um, but you, you, you see that uh, inventory is going to continue to be the main driver here. Uh, you don't see a collapse in starts like we saw um, you know, coming into the Great Recession. And uh, so is it can I summarize all this by saying, if you're a current homeowner, you're sitting on some nice gains in your house, but you're worried that the housing market might collapse like it did 10 years ago, sounds like you're saying, I wouldn't lose too much sleep at night over that. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody's in a position where they've been thinking about downsizing or something, uh, you know, it, it, it may not be, you know, uh, try, you know, selling into the, the end of the hot market certainly wouldn't be, you know, if there's a time to do that, now's probably the time. Uh, but in general, I would say don't worry too much about timing the market. Certainly don't worry about a collapse. And, it, and in fact, sort of going again back to the way things happened in um, 2000 in the, in the last boom, you know, housing, as I said, housing home sales peaked by mid 2005 uh, and builders started cutting back on housing starts very soon after that. Um, home prices really didn't start collapsing till, say, August, September 2007. Um, 
So, so even in that worst case scenario, let's, let's say that uh, your listeners don't believe anything I've said about it and they think that the bust was inevitable. Even if we accept it as inevitable, housing starts were giving us cell signals for you know, a good couple of years before, um, before prices relented. Um, and so, you know, so we have an early, early detection system there to look at. Exactly. But I would say it's, I would say not, uh, you know, from a policy point of view, we shouldn't, we should use it as a detection, uh, mechanism to say, okay, now the fed should, you know, not worry about stimulus. We should, we should keep stable economic growth and we should want those first to continue to rise. Um, but from a homeowner, from a capital allocator point of view, if, if housing starts start to decline and and Jerome and you see Jerome Powell give a speech that says um, you know we don't you know we want housing starts to decline then then yeah then I would start looking for defensive strategies and you start getting <laughs> getting nervous yeah okay so um, as we wrap up here I just I have to ask this question because we haven't talked about it yet which is interest rates um, interest rates have been at record lows for a long time um, that's obviously supportive of, of housing prices. Right there, they have an inverse relationship with with interest rates. Um, I think there's, you know, a lot of people say, look, uh, the Fed's not going to raise interest rates anytime soon. There's a lot of people that say the Fed can't afford to raise interest rates ever at this point. Um, <laughs> but in theory, the Fed does not control the market, right? So, um, uh, just a quick answer here. But but should interest rates rise dramatically from here? Right, we're seeing concerns about inflation. Um, but for whatever reason, if, if interest rates begin to get away from the Fed and rise, does that change your outlook for housing? Um, you know, no. And in a way, I think this is a reason why I think housing is actually a really interesting sector now. Um, and the home builders are an interesting sector because I really think it has some combination of defensive and offensive um, uh, uh, characteristics, you know, the, the home builders generally are trading at, you know, high single digit forward PE ratios. Um, uh, and, you know, there's no reason, there's no supply and demand reason for us to expect them to, you know, to, for their revenues to, to collapse for, for another decade. Uh, there's lots of room for growth in that, in, in construction. Um, and so in a way, I would say, uh, you know, there's sort of the short term, there, there's sort of the machinations of the Fed, um, uh, which uh, I actually think it's, it's, uh, it adds clarity for me to sort of think about Fed operations without thinking about interest rates. I think that adds more noise than signal. Uh, but in terms of long-term real interest rates, which is really what I think is the effective, you know, the, the important rates in the housing markets, which aren't certainly aren't under direct control of the Fed, and uh, and in a lot of ways sort of move counter to what you would see happening. You know, in fact, just recently uh, there was a, a sort of a tight. You know, the Fed sort of signaled that they would tighten earlier than what people thought. And long-term rates in the last you know in the last week there was this period where long-term rates went down and short-term rates moved up, sort of signaling that they would raise their target rate earlier, and that would actually put a cap on. Uh, you know, long-term inflation fears, and they've actually moved long rates down. Um, I think it's actually a positive, uh, will be positive for us to see long-term rates go up, long-term real rates to go up, because that'll be a signal of optimism, a signal that people are investing in long-term um, 
projects uh, that people have optimism about economic growth. And to the, so I think to the extent that that might have uh, moderating influences on home prices, it will probably have positive effects on buyer demand on housing starts and, and all those factors. And so again, I don't see, I don't see a combination of factors that's going to drive the housing market into the ground unless we do that intentionally. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the inflation related stuff, I think, is more short term and more, you know, uh, more um, uh, doesn't necessarily affect housing markets as much. Um, but the thing that's really unusual in historic terms is real long term interest rates. And um, I don't see a lot of reasons to be pessimistic if we see those rates rising. All right, great. Well, look, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on, Kevin, and, and educating us about the, the housing market. And I got to say, a lot of what you're saying sort of requires some real processing, but it's, um, it's fascinating. And I think, uh, I think the inventory story is probably news to most people out there. I think we look at the prices and, and, and do think that it's, it's speculation and, and cheap credit and you know driven, um, but uh, the fact that it's it's actual the inventory is the core determinant uh, is uh, you know I, I think it's a very valuable bit of insight for for viewers here. Um, so as we wrap up, Kevin, for people that have enjoyed this conversation and would like to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, I'll I'll give you a couple links. You uh, you can look at my. Um, uh, research links at, at the Mercatus Center. As you said, I have a book called Shut Out um, that, uh, that's about the, this general um, lack of housing and how it's a central component uh, in operating the economy. I've got a paper that came out recently uh, called Build More Houses that, um, that, as I said, sort of goes into quantitatively what, what was happening in housing supply uh, through the last boom. Um, and so I can give you links to all those and, and those can definitely be a starting off people. And people can also follow me on Twitter at K.A. Erdman, um, where I tend to share a lot of things. Great, great. We'll put that Twitter link up here on the screen when we edit this. Um, all right, Kevin. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on and updating us about this. And uh, as we continue to sort of watch the developments in the housing market, uh, if anything major happens, we'd love to have you come back on again. It'd be great. Yeah, appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, Kevin. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion with housing market expert Kevin Erdman. To help us continue to bring more of these interviews with great guest experts on important financial topics to you, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this YouTube channel by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And as a thank you for doing so, I have this free valuable resource for you. If you'd like to see the charts and data behind Kevin's claim that an inventory shortage is the primary driver of today's housing market, you can download his 62-page white paper on the subject for free by going to wealthion.com/housing. Thanks for watching.